Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When we talk about weather disasters, our minds often go towards tornadoes, hurricanes, and severe weather. But flooding is the most common and most expensive natural disaster in the United States. First Street Foundation, a science and technology nonprofit, has released a new study evaluating the flood risk to our nation's critical infrastructure. The study evaluates the risk for every neighborhood, zip code, city, and county in the country. Joining us today is Dr. Jeremy Porter, who leads the research and development efforts at First Street Foundation to break down the findings and the impacts of this expansive research study. Jeremy, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to talk about our, our recent report. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about it because as someone that's sort of interested in hydrometeorological extremes uh, in my own research, I look forward to sort of hearing about what you are discussing. But before I do that, let me give you some of uh, Jeremy's background. Uh, he is, has a PhD in sociology and demography with a PhD minor in applied statistics from Mississippi State University. Uh, he has a Master of Arts in Urban Geography and a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from the University of Louisville. Uh, I, I don't know if this is the appropriate question to ask, given your background, but I often ask my guests right out of the gate, how did you become a weather geek? Are you a weather geek or are you just <laughs> studying out of curiosity? That, that's, uh, that's funny because, you know, I, I, I've, I listened to the podcast and, and, and it is that, you know, I knew the question was coming because I've heard you ask. <laughs> and I'm, my background is clearly more in the in the social sciences, but but really it's it, I've I've always been more of a implications, uh, quantitative methods, statistics uh, based uh, person. So I, I'm probably more in the realm of data science than I am substantively a weather uh, person. But you know, in in the past, I don't know, five or six years, I've been working really heavily. With the uh, with the First Street Foundation and, and and really focused on taking the research that that we're doing with folks that are climate scientists and and um, folks that are more in the realm of, of uh, your own your own research and taking that work and sort of expanding on it. So our, our goal is to build out the science with partners that are experts in the area, but then to really take it one step further and add on the implications component. So we want to know. What are the social implications? What are the economic implications of what we're seeing? But not only what are they going to be, because we know there's a changing environment, but are they already happening? And can we measure that? And can we tell people in a way that's easy to communicate that, you know, climate change isn't something that's going to happen in 2100. It's something that's been happening for X number of years. And this is how we're going to show you uh, that it's been happening directly to you. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point and something that I've tried to articulate as well. Uh, Dr. Porter is a professor and director of the quantitative methods uh, of quantitative methods in the social sciences program at the University, City University of New York. Uh, research associate, excuse me, 
at the Institute for Demographic Research and appointed to the faculty as a lecturer at Columbia, Columbia University's Environmental Health Sciences Program. So clearly you are someone that reminds me of people that I often work with. I'm, I'm actually in a geography department at the University of Georgia and uh, work with folks with backgrounds like yours all of the time. So uh, it's really uh, fascinating. Uh, tell us a little bit about the study that, that we have you on today and, and what's driving it. Yeah, so at, at the First Street Foundation, we, we actually released, we've been at this for about four years now. So we're, we're, we've been really working on uh, smart ways to, to address our mission, which is to quantify and communicate uh, climate risk and, and, and the fact that there is a changing uh, climate to regular people. We want to figure out smart ways as a comms. We have a really good comms team here at the First Street Foundation to make this heavy, uh, sophisticated science, something that's digestible and something that's accessible and something that's easy, easy for regular people to understand. Uh, so we've been at this for about four years. Uh, back in June of 2020, we actually launched our first uh, report, which was re really just focused on quantifying the risk with our model, which we built, built out. It was a high resolution, three meter horizontal resolution flood model that gave you the ability to look at properties specifically across different probabilities of storms. And we worked all the way from the one in two year event up to the one in 500 year event to give a lot of uh, understanding of a more sort of holistic under, uh, view of, of flood risk. And as we built that out, we, you know, we found that if you use the public facing FEMA maps, there's actually 1.7 times more flood risk to properties across the U.S. than would be identified just using as a one in a hundred special flood hazard area map from FEMA. So that was sort of our first report. We wanted to, to try to get to the point to where we were quantifying risk across the country. And then after we launched it, we put all the data up. We have a tool called floodfactor.com that, that we make available to, 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 for free. We make all of our data available to folks that want to look it up on their, on their property. But a lot of people went there and they looked at it and they said, all right, so I have, you know, moderate risk of, of flooding and, you know, what does that mean? It doesn't really mean anything to a lot of people. So we built out a second report focused on the economic damages of flooding. Uh, again, leaning on federal government resources, publicly available data, but really taking that uh, those depths, uh, those flood, those modeled flood depths across the different return periods in our model, and turning them into uh, average annualized loss indicators to let people understand yearly or when the storm hits, this is how much it's going to cost economically. And that that really went from the point to where people didn't understand the term risk in the way that we were presenting it out, but everybody responded to, oh, in dollars and cents, now this makes sense to me and, and it's attached to my property. So all of a sudden, the, the being able to quantify uh, risk in a way that made sense to people today and moving into the future was something that really resounded with folks. And we, we, we sort of um, uh, realized that pretty quickly. So we, we actually built out a third report, which is the one that we're talking about today, which is a, a, a report that moves beyond just the property level. Our first two reports were focused on individual property level uh, analyses. We wanted to understand beyond just the property, if you're, if you're, if your home, for instance, is in a place that's protected or it's at a high elevation, you're not likely to flood. There's still risk if your community infrastructure is at risk or if the road network floods or if your your child's school or your church uh, floods. So we, we, we sort of built out this third report to give a more 
uh, well-rounded sort of uh, community-focused understanding of risk, and and sort of to 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 point to the fact that people have risk even when their own individual properties don't have risk. Wow, fascinating discussion with Dr. Jeremy Porter. And I think this is important because, as I mentioned in the intro, I think people sleep on flooding. Uh, what I mean by that is you know, you know, people get all up and uh, alarmed, uh, as rightfully so, when there's a tornado warning or when there is a, a hurricane approaching the coast. Um, but I think oftentimes flooding and heat are, are often sort of perceived as not as sort of worthy of the, uh, I guess, frenzy, if you will, in terms of warning. And, and we know that flooding is both dead, deadly and costly. I think with the recent flooding, for example, with Ida uh, in uh, parts of the Northeast, uh, I think people have a sense of just how deadly it can be. Um, one of the things I noticed about your study is that there a 30-year time frame was used for the report. Uh, to what degree, if any, did climate change uh, play in the modeling of the data? Yeah, uh, the ability to quantify the change out into the future is one of our our, our primary interests at at the First Street Foundation. We we want we do want to show that risk today is different than what you probably think it is, but that it's it's going to continue to change as the environment continues to change into the future. We we did a lot of of sort of user testing and and um, sort of focus groups and things like that early on where we found that. You know, if we if we if we start talking about 2100, people don't care or they they do care, but it's somebody else's problem or it's so far out that it's just hard to to make it tangible to that person. When we when we started focusing on the 30 year period, there were were two things that happened. One was it was near term enough that people realized it was going to impact them in their lifetime and and relatively uh, uh, close in terms of of sort of the, the, the sort of temporal scale. But then they also um, oftentimes attach that to their to their homes and to their properties and sort of an impact on on their assets. So they would say, well, if I have a 30 year mortgage and you tell me I live in a one in 100 year zone, that's only a one percent chance of flooding each year. You know, I'll take that. But then if you tell them over 30 years, if you take that that joint probability, it's actually a 26 percent chance that you're going to get hit by a one in 100 year event over this 30 year period, then people like, wow, there's a one in four chance that I could get hit by a fairly significant flood over the time of, of my mortgage or over the short term in the next 30 years. So it really was the result of, of sort of interacting with a lot of, of people trying to make the information uh, usable and then trying to communicate it in a way that, that more accurately reflected the risk that individuals held. Yeah, I've often heard my colleague, Dr. Brian Bledsoe here at the University of Georgia talk about once in a mortgage instead of a 100 year. And I, I, that's really an interesting way because I, I think this concept of 100 year flood just really is confusing to people because they, you know, you, as you stated, so even that terminology, there's a 1% chance, but I think that people don't understand that you could have three 100 year floods in one year from a probability standpoint. Mm-hmm. But I think they interpret it as meaning, oh, that only happens every 100 years. And so with climate change, we know that's changing itself. Uh, you mention and deal with infrastructure, and it's a very broad catch-all term that we're hearing quite a bit about today, particularly with infrastructure bills, bills being um, considered and uh, devastation to infrastructure from extreme weather events and so forth. Um, tell us a bit more about how you think about infrastructure and how it's broken down in your study. I know you kind of alluded to it somewhat in your answer earlier. Yeah. 
so we we that's, that's a really good point because there there are certainly components of infrastructure that we don't capture in a, in our analysis and and a lot of what we do here at the first street foundation is where you know all of our our research all of our reports all of our models we we publish the results we put out technical documentation we make all of the the methods even for our flood models uh, open and transparent through the peer review process in the academic journals so all of the all the information is publicly available which makes us a little bit different from other risk indicators or other other companies that are doing this type of modeling in the sense that lots of times their models are proprietary so they're not putting that information out into the world um we're we're as a nonprofit, we're in a kind of a unique spot that we're able to but it also means that we're generally relying on publicly available data for our analyses also so we're 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 in doing the infrastructure analysis we focused on critical infrastructure from primarily government resources where we could find uh, what we thought was exhaustive or near exhaustive uh, accounting of, of what we would end up including in our critical infrastructure category. So for critical infrastructure, we include things like airports, uh, fire stations, hospitals, uh, police stations, ports, uh, power stations. But then we also have um, things that are important to the communities, sort of health and safety, uh, things like hazardous waste sites and water outfall locations and wastewater treatment uh, plants. We built on top of that and added a social infrastructure category, which includes government buildings, historic buildings, places of worship, and museums and schools. And then we added to that um, the, the from the Census Bureau, we took their the road network and we broke the road network across the country into 100 meter segments. And we treated every 100 meter segment as its own sort of point of interest as a piece of infrastructure. So that that's essentially how we've grouped infrastructure. We don't include things that oftentimes get 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 um, sort of reported on things like bridges. You know, bridges have had a lot of uh, of coverage in recent years as as critical infrastructure. Um, we don't we don't include for instance, um, uh, stormwater management uh, infrastructure that we don't have access to. So for a lot of cities, you know, the the underlying stormwater management system or even wastewater management system isn't publicly available. So we're not able to include that in our analysis. But we so we we we, we essentially are, are capturing emergency services, uh, sort of social uh, uh, community points of interest, and then the network through which those emergency services are carried to people. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Jeremy Porter about flooding in America's infrastructure, something that is certainly on the minds of many people who actually live in flood zones or perhaps federal authorities or uh, industry that have facilities in flood prone areas and so forth. So this is a really critical discussion today. There's something that I find very interesting in your report. Uh, the report found that 23%, almost one in four of all road segments in the country, nearly 2 million miles of road are at risk of becoming impassable. Was, was that surprising to you? That, as I mentioned earlier, almost all of our reporting to this, to this point has been focused on residential properties. And we were almost positive when we walked into the into the analysis that residential properties were going to be the most at risk across the country and that critical infrastructure, roads, commercial properties were all going to be built to a, a standard that, that protected them against the risk that some residential properties had. And we, what we found was the opposite. Residential properties were actually the lowest uh, at risk in our analysis, 14% across the country, 23% uh, of roads, as you mentioned, and 25% of our critical infrastructure group. And what really jumped out to me in that analysis was uh, you, you, when you need the emergency services the most, the hospitals, the police stations, the fire stations, this is, is during a flood and during, during a disaster. And this is, this is the group that's the most at risk in our analysis. And then the other thing when you, when you talk about roads is that that's how those emergency services are delivered. So not, not only are your, is your critical infrastructure and your emergency services at such a high risk, but the ways in which we get those to people during an emergency are also going to be blocked and they're, they're also going to end up um, uh, at risk or they were at risk in our analysis. So, you know, there's this sort of compounding uh, factor here where in communities that have high flood risk, both their, their emergency services and their roads are likely to have more flood risk than the residential properties in that same community. Were there other aspects of the study? I mean, I, I, I found that very surprising, but what surprised you as one of the or scientists involved? What, what are some other things that as you really started digging into the results that really just jumped out at you as like, wow? Yeah. The, it, one of the things that always, always surprises me in our, in our report, and I think it's probably, you know, would surprise a lot of folks, um, maybe not, maybe not the, the scientists that are like the, 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 the climate scientists that are into, uh, uh, modeling this, but for somebody like myself that does implications research, I look at these, these results from our reports and I see, okay, Florida has a lot of risk. Louisiana has a lot of risk. Uh, coastal South Carolina has a lot of risk. We knew that we see that we see the hurricanes on the news that get covered. We see them. Um, um, flooding a lot of these these locations. What always surprises me is the is the rainfall and precipitation risk that occurs inland in places like West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky, and then the, the the floods that happened in Tennessee earlier this year, and all the way up into New England. And then if you start to project uh, into the future with using the global climate models, you can you can start to see trends that are going to drive uh, tropical tropical storms uh, further north moving into the future. So they're, they're not necessarily, the science of, of course uh, is, is, is mixed a little bit on this, but they're, they're, there's not necessarily gonna be more of these tropical storms, but they tend to be, as you're projecting outwards, likely to move further north and, and, and moving at a slower pace. So they're dropping more 
precipitation. They're reaching places in the mid-Atlantic and, and into New England that they used to not hit with the same uh, amount of power. And you're starting to see uh, uh, huge amounts of risk in in some of these more inland places. I think we we mentioned Ida, or you mentioned Ida earlier. Ida is a, a, a perfect example of that. I mean, it's it hit it hit the coast. It was tied with Laura. It's one of the strongest storms to hit the Louisiana coast. So it was certainly a, a strong hurricane when it hit the coast. But then it worked its way up through the middle of the country as primarily a, a precipitation event. And and we're in New York. Our our offices are in in Brooklyn, and there was just devastating flooding in in the New York City area. And it, it was really uh, the product of, of, you know, sort of a strong tropical storm that sort of held together, moved slowly through the area and just dumped a ton of uh, precipitation in, in, in areas that maybe uh, it, it hasn't in the past. One of the things I, uh, talking with uh, Dr. Jeremy Porter, uh, even with one of my own graduate students in the past, Dr. Benita KC, who's a data scientist at NASA, uh, is this idea of climate risk in the year 2040. And we found some of the same things, uh, this inland risk, these urban risks, you know, the, the risks aren't just uh, anchored to the coast with flooding and hurricanes. And so I strongly resonate with what you're saying. Now, given your background in sociology and urban geography and so forth as well, Josh, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> Jeremy, I was thinking about our good friend, Josh Bexler. So shout out to Josh Bexler who books these. Uh, I, I saw his name flash across the screen. Uh, Jeremy, what do you see or find in terms of vulnerability, in terms of demographics? I know that there are certainly some communities, uh, marginalized, perhaps poor communities, communities of color that may be uh, predisposed. I, I know you were focused more on infrastructure, but given what you were just saying about Ida and some of the deaths that we saw in basement apartments and so forth, uh, have, have, have your results been able to sort of inform that discussion? Yeah, uh, and to, we, we, we have a lot of, of researchers that we're working with in, in the, the First Street Research Lab across the country. We, we share our data regularly with academics to do a lot of of this research, but some of the the stuff that that they're doing and and that we're we're sort of working on, we we find that you know flood risk is is one of the in in a lot of ways um, is is an equalizer in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of folks there 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 are very wealthy communities along the coast that have that have flood risk, and then there are places that are more working class and more. Uh, middle class, where where you know if their property was to be damaged, that's their primary asset, and it's it's sort of tied uh, that most of their wealth is tied up in in that property. The the big difference is the way that people can respond to that. So if you're if you're inland and you're especially if you're looking at places like West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky and those locations, you're talking about in the places where where there's flood risk, and you're you're talking about a more working class. Uh, type of, of of community and in those places, especially when you compound that with the fact that the the FEMA special flood hazard area maps don't generally map heavy precipitation events very well, which is the type of, of flooding that occurs in these space spaces. All of a sudden, you have a lot of unknown risk in in working class communities. So, when in in our research, we didn't necessarily find that there's more risk. Uh, among working class uh, communities, but what we what we tended to find was that there's more unknown risk, lots of times because the federally facing special flood hazard area maps don't don't capture the type of flooding that occurs outside of the the coastal surge areas and the large river channels. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm having a fascinating discussion, albeit a scary one, uh, with Dr. Jeremy Porter. And again, I don't say scary in the sense of just this idea of climate change and uh, floods being these big, bad risks. It's scary from the standpoint that we have an aging infrastructure. We have an infrastructure that's vulnerable to this generation of climate. And so this, this study is very important, and I appreciate uh, Dr. Porter coming on Weather Geeks to talk about it. One of the questions that I, I, you know, that may be on the minds of some of the listeners, now that we have such information down to a neighborhood level, uh, how can we use this to better prepare for the future? Yeah, it's, you know, we, we've been working on this for, for over a year now, which it, it, it actually was quite a coincidence with all, all of the discussions around infrastructure that are happening uh, in D.C. right now to, to, to put out this report at the same time. But they're they're are a lot of uh, parallels in the sense that there, 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 there is going to be at some point some amount of, of money probably that's available for infrastructure hardening and for adaptation. Uh, the biggest problem that we've run into in the last year and a half is, is that there's a lot of small communities that have reached out to us for our data because they want to do their own sort of resilience planning, but they don't have engineers on staff and they don't have floodplain managers on staff. Uh, so we, even when we give them the data, they're not really sure what to do with it. They're not really sure how to understand or even screen for risk. So from my, my perspective and being more of a population scientist and focused a lot on uh, policy is that, that, that the first step in, in sort of addressing these issues is that communities need a smart way to understand their own flood risk. They need to be able to screen their infrastructure, their residential properties, their just larger communities for the risk that, that exists so that they can start to understand uh, uh, what the risk is to their, their constituents, but also uh, what's the next step? Uh, once you have good data and you understand that there is this type of risk, what do you do next to, to protect against that? And that's really the, the gap that we were hoping to fill with this community report. We, we, we figured out early on there are a lot of places don't have uh, the, the engineers or the staff. You know, we, we've also talked to Miami and New York City and those places have all, all, all the resources they need for uh, for planning for these types of things. So we're not, not necessarily addressing those types of cities but the counties and the communities uh, and cities that are smaller that don't have those resources, but want to understand their flood risk. We've made that available now in our, in our community analysis so that people can take that first step. They can understand their own, their own risk. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because as someone that's been sort of in the weather climate world for a while, I, I, I do often feel we can have 
large city biases when we think about impacts on extreme event from extreme events or from climate change. Um, and we, we often forget that there are a lot of people that live in smaller cities and towns uh, and even rural areas that are still exposed to some of these challenges. I grew up in a small town uh, here in Georgia. I mean, it's metropolitan Atlanta now, but at the time it, it was just a small town that likely had flood issues, but you, you know, might've gotten lost. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to hear that you say that, what you just said in that last uh, answer. That, is this something that, I mean, I guess like the IPCC, you need to do periodically uh, every four years, every 10 years, like the census uh, to really keep track of what's going on or is this sort of a one-time deal? Yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely, I mean, we, we got the first version of it out. We have hydrologists on staff um, that are that are working with the new CMIP six uh, um, uh, projections, and we're you know we're we're always we're constantly updating our our digital elevation models, looking for the best inputs into the into into the model. So we'll, we'll continue to improve the model. Um, we're not we're not we haven't figured out yet what the cadence will be on on sort of report releases around flooding. I think it would make sense if any if any input data dramatically changes so if we get if we get new climate data that that gets validated and looks like it's a vast improvement on on past iterations of the data that we were using then i think that would certainly necessitate a full run of the model a full analysis and uh sort of producing new reports but our our plan is to constantly uh, be producing some type of report so again we did we did a property analysis uh, an economic analysis uh, we've done we've done an analysis so far on on community uh, risks now. We're gonna build out other climate perils as part of our offerings too. So we're working on a fire model now with a with a group uh, uh, out in California. And what we're just gonna continue to build out these uh, climate models and, and make them publicly available. We're gonna put all of the research in, 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 in the peer review system in an open and transparent way. We're gonna, we're gonna produce tools online that individuals can use. And our, our focus is really and this is this may be some a point I should have made earlier. Our focus is really on marrying the the science with the communications aspect because so often there's really really good stuff that comes out of out of the science and the work that gets done uh, around climate. It, but it, it it lives in academic journals and in technical reports and it doesn't get make its way to uh, to, to individuals. So we 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 really focus on distilling a lot of that information. Uh, re relating it to implications and then translating that to to regular regular uh, uh, folks. Yeah, I think that's so important because again, <laughs> now how many people read our academic papers and journals? Not not too many. Where where can where can people find more out about your your model, your data, your work? Yeah, uh, the, all of our, our technical documentation and research reports are on our site at, at uh, First Street Foundation, firststreet.com. But we also have uh, the tool, floodfactor.com. And I think that that's probably the best tool for individuals to use. You can go on, you can look at, at property, neighborhood, county, uh, state level risk indicators. You can go through and look at the, the actual outputs from our risk uh, report from our economic damages report and from our community report. It's all there. It's all interactive. You can scroll around in the community and see 
which points of interest are at risk. So I, I, I would I would encourage folks. It is free. It's available. It's publicly available at floodfactor.com. So where, where can people find you on, on social media? Are you on Twitter or anything that people can follow you? I, I, I am on Twitter. I'm embarrassed to say that I'm, I'm not very active. I'm at, I'm at J. Reed Porter, but I think the, be, the better place to follow us on uh, social media would be on our first read accounts. I think we, we have a really good comms team that's constantly putting out new um, new content, and, and that would probably be the best, <laughs> the best place to follow, to follow us and what we're doing. Fair enough. This has been so fascinating and we have to end it there. But before we do, it's time for our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Erin Sheffield. Erin is pursuing her master's in emergency management from Millersville University, and she loves to use her passion of meteorology and GIS mapping to help inform those of the impacts of natural disasters. Her goal is to better incorporate GIS into the disaster response framework in order to improve planning, response times, collaboration, and communication during the most challenging dynamic situations. Thank you for continuing the push for better disaster response, Erin. To follow along with Erin, check her out at the Geo Goddess. I love the Twitter handle, at the Geo Goddess. And thank you again for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, uh, really fascinating, and uh, we'd love to have you back anytime. Hey, I really appreciate it. It was, it was fun to talk with you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll talk to you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.